0: Will you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1, John chapter 1? We want everybody to be able to follow along as we look at John chapter 1. So Larry and Aaron have some Bibles that they'll distribute. And if you're following along in those Bibles, it's page 587, John chapter 1. As we continue the series begun a few weeks ago titled Meet Your Maker from the Gospel of John. As recently as one hundred and fifty years ago, scientists believed in something called spontaneous generation that life could originate spontaneously and that we could observe that many pointed to the so-called fact that flies, for instance, could, they thought, come from dead meat. The great scientist Louis Pasteur realized the futility of spontaneous generation. And a fellow scientist had demonstrated long before that flies didn't arise from decaying meat, but from eggs that other flies laid on the meat. Pasteur definitively showed that microbes did not arise in sterile meat broth unless and until other microbes had access to it. He formulated what later became known as the law of biogenesis. Life only comes from life. A purely naturalistic explanation of origins simply cannot abide that the idea that life comes from life because the implications are too painful to consider. Life that we have, life that we see came from prior life. There are profound implications for that. And so most scientists today hold to abiogenesis. that is. It does not require life to generate life. While Pasteur's results were so compelling that they remained unchallenged for about 50 years, in 1924, a Russian chemist proposed that organic molecules coalesce together to form the first living cell in what he called the primordial soup. Such a cell would then go on to evolve into all the different types of living things on Earth today. An escape hatch from the idea that life generates life. And then in 1953, a couple of guys, Urey and Miller, actually tried to imitate the generation of life from non-life in the laboratory. And their results were heralded worldwide as proving that life could originate spontaneously. There's only one problem. Harold Urey and Stanley Miller's experiment has now been shown to be unsound and has been discredited. Because the conditions they created in the lab are now known to have been quite different from the Earth's early atmosphere. To this day, friends, all that we can observe is that natural life comes from existing life. There is no spontaneous generation, chemical or otherwise. But don't let that stop you. So this is what some have said. Franklin Harold, professor of biochemistry and molecular biology at Colorado State. Life arose here on Earth from inanimate matter by some kind of evolutionary process about four billion years ago. He goes on to say this is not a statement of demonstrable fact, but an assumption almost universally shared by specialists as well as scientists in general. It's not supported by any direct evidence, nor is it likely to be. But it's consistent with the evidence we do have. Textbooks describe Uri and Miller's experiment. Where's Larry? (laughs) So back up. You You got the remote? Can you back up? The one prior to that. There you go. Thanks. The textbooks describe Urey and Miller's experiment. This is from Modern Biology. As the gases circulated in the chamber, sparks representing lightning supplied energy to drive chemical reactions. The experiment generated organic compounds, including amino acids, the building blocks of proteins. But we find out later. As Dyson tells us, Miller's beguiling picture of a pond full of dissolved amino acids under a reducing atmosphere has been discredited. By the way, he's not a fundamentalist creationist. It's just the fact. Francis Crick, who I mentioned last week, said this. If a particular amino acid sequence was selected by chance, how rare an event would this be? The great majority of sequences can never be synthesized at all at any time. Robert Grange said this the likelihood of life having occurred through a chemical accident is, for all intents and purposes, zero. Neil Broome said this, a fundamental problem that science has never been able to solve is how to produce energy flow through the system to do this work of coding in order to produce, for example, a functioning protein. Living systems do, of course, harness energy for this purpose, but only because the required purposefully assembled metabolic machinery is already in place and functioning. Another has said about Crick and Watson's experiments. Since the findings of Watson and Crick, it was increasingly realized by contemporary researchers that the information residing in the cells is of crucial importance for the existence of life. Anybody who wants to make meaningful statements about the origin of life would be forced to explain how the information originated. All evolutionary views are fundamentally unable to answer this crucial question. Stay with me. Another scientist simply says this, the simplest living cell could not have arisen by chance. Franklin Herald said, the origin of life is a stubborn problem with no solution in sight. Yet another. More than 30 years of experimentation on the origin of life in the fields of chemical and molecular evolution have led to a better perception of the immensity of the problem of the origin of life on Earth rather than to its solution. An associate of Sir Fred Hoyle, who I mentioned last week, said this. The chances that life just occurred are about as unlikely as a typhoon blowing through a junkyard and constructing a Boeing 747. (laughs) finally, one doctor of physics said this. Many investigators feel uneasy about stating in public that the origin of life is a mystery. Even though behind closed doors, they freely admit they are baffled. He adds, these are his words, they worry that a frank admission of ignorance will undermine funding. So don't let the lack of evidence stop you. Continue to deny that there is a personal creator. Continue to deny all that we can observe, the fact that life comes from life. The truth of the matter is, friends, it takes a lot of faith to deny the creator, doesn't it? I consider myself a man of faith, but I can't muster up enough to believe that. The question is not whether you have faith or belief. The question is, in what or in whom do you place your faith and believe? And here's what I do believe. It's found in John chapter 1 and verse 4 in the very first phrase. In him was life. Life comes from life. And the reason we see life here is because he has always had life there. In him was life. And John says this right after saying in verse 3, through him, Jesus Christ, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And then John says, in him, this one who made all things, he was able to give life because in him was life. And he focuses our attention upon the pinnacle of Christ's creative work, the beginning of life. I invite you to follow along then with the outline we've provided for you at the back of your program as we look at John chapter 1, verses 4 through 13. Where the Bible tells us Jesus Christ as the only source of salvation is such because first he is life. And men deny the obvious about the natural world. Hear this, not because they're dumb. Far from it. They deny the obvious in the natural world because they have a spiritual problem. The one who is life, John tells us, is also light. Notice verse 4. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And what does light do? It exposes darkness. And this is a problem for those who are in what the Bible calls spiritual darkness. Verse five reads this way. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Now, note the expression. The darkness has not understood it. The basic meaning of the Greek word that's translated understood means to seize something. If you seize something with your mind, it means you understand it. That's why it's. Translated that way here, but the same word is used in chapter 12 by John, and there he did not use it to describe understanding something, but rather overtaking or overpowering something. And that's what's in view here. He's saying the light of Jesus Christ shines into the darkness of this world with brilliant illuminating light power. And try though it does, the darkness cannot overcome or overpower the light because the one who is life and who is light is also a third thing that we have in your outline. He's powerful. In the time when John was writing, many of the world's religions believed that there were, in effect, two equal and opposing spiritual powers in the world, dualism. Many people believe that today. Give God credit for the good stuff. The devil does the bad stuff. We're hoping God will win in the end. Hear this, friends. There are not two gods in this universe. There's one. And Satan is on God's leash. And he can only do what God allows him to do. But at that time in day, as in our day, there were those who believed in this dualism and you had light and you had darkness completing equally within the universe. Sometimes the light would overpower the dark temporarily. Sometimes the dark would overpower the light temporarily. And John's saying there is no dualism. Darkness cannot overpower the light. It cannot happen in the physical universe and it cannot happen in the spiritual realm either. Light dispels darkness. And John's point is that the light shines into the darkness and the darkness cannot overpower or overcome that light. As we approach verse number six, it seems as if John then is anticipating a question as he lays this out. How then can I come to this light? How can I know who it is? John answers that question in verses six through eight. where He tells us that Jesus Christ has been clearly identified As the light, the source of our salvation. Notice verse 6. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light. Now, there are four accounts in your Bible of the life of Jesus. They're right at the beginning of your New Testament. You're in one of those four, the book of John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the idea of a witness occurs a total of three times. In John's gospel, in this book of John alone, we encounter this word witness 33 times. Because it's the dominant theme of the book. John, who wrote this, wants us to understand that we have the light in Jesus Christ. And he and his associates have heard the message and they give witness as to who he is. And now John selects one of those witnesses, other witnesses that heard Jesus and walked with Jesus. To help illustrate the fact that the identity of the creator has been made clear, our maker is none other than Jesus Christ. So in verse number 6, he tells us God sent a prophet, a witness. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. Now, the name of this book is John. When he says there was a man sent from God whose name was John, you might think he's referring to himself. He's referring to another John. We know him as John the Baptist. And John the Apostle here is saying God sent one of his witnesses, this man, John the Baptist. As you think about the great prophets in the first part of your Bible, we call it the Old Testament. Many of them capture our imagination. And yet Jesus said that John the Baptist was the greatest prophet who ever lived. And with the closing of the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, the heavens became silent and there was no message from God for 400 years. Did you know that? that there's a gap between the end of your Old Testament and the coming of Christ that begins your New Testament, a period of about 400 years. And in the Old Testament, the prophets said that there was a prophet coming who would prepare the way for the Messiah, the Christ. They said that when Christ comes, there's one who will proclaim that day and he'll make the path straight for the Messiah the same way a herald would prepare the way for a king. John the Baptist was that one. He came preaching Prepare the way. The Messiah, the Christ, has come. So God sent this prophet, John the Baptist, as a witness to who Jesus Christ is, the Creator who has life and is light. In verse 7, it says He came as a witness to testify concerning that light. People would flock to John the Baptist from all over Palestine. They would respond to John the Baptist's message. He was given opportunity to meet face to face with King Herod on his throne. And he declared to King Herod with great courage the righteousness of God. But John's greatest moment in all of that, in all of his ministry career, came at a time when he was baptizing people at the River Jordan. And he saw from afar Jesus coming and he said in a loud voice to everyone who was there, he pointed to Jesus and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is this witness who came to prepare the way of the Messiah, the Christ. John the Baptist was the greatest prophet, not just because he was a powerful preacher, Not just because of the mighty way he stood in opposition to the sin of his day. He was the greatest of all prophets because he was privileged to point to the Messiah and say, he's the one. God sent his prophet as a witness. He was the first of a lineup of witnesses that are going to be paraded before us as we go through the Gospel of John. There's the witness of John the Baptist. There's the witness of the Samaritan woman, the disciples of Jesus, the eyewitnesses of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ, the blind man in chapter 9, the Father, God the Father witnesses, God the Spirit witnesses, the Scriptures witness of Him. On and on, John says, we have these witnesses, and the witnesses give their testimony for a specific purpose. Verse 7 tells us what that purpose is. He, John the Baptist, came as one of these many witnesses to testify concerning that light so that through him all men might believe. If you were with us a few weeks ago when we started this study, we looked at chapter 20 and verse 31 where John tells us the reason for which he wrote this book. He says, I have written these things to you that you might believe. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life through his name. And John's saying, I'm compiling these witnesses, starting with John the Baptist, so that through him all men might believe. And we also, I as a preacher, a herald for the true and living God, testify as one who has been given The prophecies of the word of God in written form in the Bible. Let me just pause and say what a marvelous, what a great privilege that is. To be able to stand up and say Jesus is the one and point people to him so that they might believe in him. We have that prophecy. I have that prophecy not directly from God. I don't get messages from God. You'll be glad to know. I get them the same way you do. Through the pages of Scripture, the revelation that God has left for us. And we proclaim that revelation without embarrassment because we desire all people to believe in Christ. God sent his prophet. He sent him for the purpose of being a witness. He sent him for the purpose of people believing. And in verse number eight, he says, notice this. John says about John the Baptist, he, John the Baptist, was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. This first of these witnesses that John is going to parade before us, John the Baptist, is one who came and involved himself in a selfless task. John the Baptist was a self-effacing man, a humble man. In the work of Jesus Christ, we occasionally encounter men who usurp the significance of their own message. Men who gain a following because of their talents or their flair for the spectacular. Men who begin to read their own press releases and worse, they believe them. In their own minds and in the minds of their followers, they often become more important than the message. And yet when God chose the greatest prophet who ever lived, he chose a man who was rough and rugged. The Bible tells us he was nothing to look at. He lived the simplest of lifestyles. He was unrefined when he was challenged as to his identity. Who are you? There were some people who thought he was the one who was to come. and He immediately responded, I am not the Christ. In three weeks, we're going to have a guest preacher here, October 21st. I encourage you to be here to hear Dr. Doug McLaughlin preach during our worship hour. You will be blessed by having heard this man. And I remember sitting in a seminar he did several years ago. And he made this statement in that seminar. He said, you know, man, he was talking to preachers. You ought to make the habit of every now and then getting up, looking in the mirror and saying this. I am not the Christ. (laughs) And he's dead right. Because there's one who ultimately matters. And John the Baptist Understood that. And when he could have taken credit and glory to himself, he said, I'm not the Christ. John the Baptist said he was simply a voice. I am just the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way of the Lord, he said. He didn't promote himself. In fact, he said he must become greater and I must become less. The Bible tells us. Friends, Jesus Christ is everything and we're privileged To simply be a voice that points men and women to him. In verse nine, it's as if John anticipates yet another question. Okay, you've told me Jesus is the only source of life, physical and spiritual. You've told me he's been clearly identified by many witnesses, beginning with this one witness, John the Baptist. How do I receive this light? Verses nine through 13. Tell us. Verse nine says this, the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. In that line, there are a number of important inferences. One is this, that the truth is exclusive in its content. It focuses upon Jesus Christ. There are a lot of people who have claimed to have the light, the truth. There are a lot of people who have claimed to be the light. But John refers to Jesus in verse 9 as the true light, the genuine light. All opinions, contrary to what our culture says, all opinions are not equal. There is supposed truth, but ultimately there's only one true truth, as the philosopher, Christian philosopher Francis Schaeffer said. Jesus is the genuine light, the, true, the genuine truth. And the truth is exclusive in its content. content. It focuses upon Christ himself. Notice also, verse 9 says this, that this is a light for every man. Though it's exclusive in its content, it's universal in its availability. It's not limited on the basis of race. It's not just for the Jewish people, for instance. It's for every man. We're told here that this exclusive light is available to all men. And has come into the world. The eternal, unknowable God crashed into history to make God known. And here John introduces an idea we're going to see in next week's message. It's a fancy word called the incarnation. God became flesh to make God known. And it comes from two words meaning to be encased in flesh. It's a term describing the fact that Jesus Christ, eternal God, at a point in history, took to himself flesh so that he could become a man. Next week, we're going to see that that word became flesh and we have seen his glory. John tells us here in verses 10 and 11 what happened when Jesus became a man. I have it for you in your outline. He was rejected when he became a man. God come in the flesh. He was rejected by most of his creation. Notice what verse 10 says. He was in the world and... Though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Great tragedy that we read here, is it not? He came, John says, he was present. He walked among men of whom he's the creator and yet was rejected by them. Men wanted nothing to do with Jesus Christ. Mankind's rejection of the Messiah, the word become flesh, God come as a man, is not a matter of a lack of information. It's not that he came into creation and they simply didn't know who he was. Verse 11 refers to the Jewish people when it says he came to that which was his own and they knew who he was. In the Old Testament, God had selected a race, the Jewish people. God prepared them for the coming of the Messiah. He told them that he would come. He prophesied the details of his coming. He told them that they should expect him to come and they should have known him. But when he came, they wanted nothing to do with him. He was rejected. Well, that's what they did. And unfortunately, that's what we do. He is still rejected. And understand that he is rejected not because there's a problem with him. And not because there's a problem of a lack of information. The problem is in the hearts of men. We turn to chapter 3 for just a moment. Just hold your finger here in chapter 3. John chapter 3. The most famous verse in the Bible is in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave the one and only that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And we know that verse. But what we may not see is just a few verses down in verse 19. It tells us that the light came in verse 19, but that men loved darkness rather than light. You see that? And people still love darkness rather than light. The word was revealed. God was made known when Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, came to earth as a human. But he was rejected by his own creation. But thanks be to God, the story does not end there. Because Jesus was indeed received by some. Turn back to chapter 1 if you would. Verse 12 tells us, yet, yet to all who received him. To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Do you know that at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, he had just a few followers? That's been multiplied by many millions through the centuries since. But it's still a relative few compared to his creation. Verse 12 tells us that some received him. How did they do that? They did it. By faith alone. It says to all who received him, namely to those who believed in his name. In the Gospel of John, belief is more than just intellectual acknowledgement that Jesus exists. It's a commitment of trust. All who received him, that is, committed their lives to him or trusted him, he gave the right to become children of God. What a marvelous thing for those of us who have done that and embraced that, that we are the children of God. John, who wrote this gospel, also wrote three other books in your New Testament, actually four other. He wrote the letters of 1st, 2nd and 3rd John and the last book in your New Testament, the book of Revelation. In 1st John, chapter 3 and verse 1, here's what John says. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us. That we should be called the children of God. And then notice this last phrase. It's as if John is writing this. How great is God's love that I should be called the children of a child of God. And then as he's writing it, he just says, and I really am. I'm really a child of God. And we really are. That's what we are. What an amazing thing that this God who made us, who's rejected by most, has been embraced by some. And those who embrace him, he gives the title children of God. It's not just that we are children of God in name only, but we've been transformed and truly made children of God. And John was amazed at that. And this great benefit to us came not because we earn it, not because we deserve it, not because when we're apart from God, we even want it. It's given by God's grace alone and it's received by simple faith. Believing. Here's the final thing. These people, John tells us, who did receive Jesus Christ, the light that has come into the world, were saved by God alone. Notice verse 13. The end of verse 12, he gave these people the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. The word that's translated natural descent is an unusual word. It's hard to express the idea behind it. It's literally the plural Bloods, not born of bloods. It's an unusual expression to us. But yet we speak of blood as describing someone's lineage, don't we? We talk about their bloodline. And John's talking about natural descent or physical lineage. He's saying you're not a child of God just because of your physical line. Do not depend upon the fact that your parents are Christians. Do not depend upon the fact that you live in a so-called Christian country. If you ask many people, are they a Christian? Here's what they will say. Yes, I was baptized when I was two weeks old. Hear this, friends. God does not have grandchildren. God only has children. And every single individual is responsible to place their faith and trust in him personally. And further, the Bible says here, we're not born of human decision, not of the will of a fleshly created being. John says here, you and I do not control God. Salvation is God's choice and it is God's work. The climax of verse 13 is John's statement that we are born of who born of God. God is the one who did it. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the father draws him. What a humbling thought for people who are in denial about the fact that he's the creator at all. To be faced with the reality that we do not control, manipulate, or demand anything of the throne of heaven. We're utterly dependent upon his grace. Friends, as we close, I have the great privilege of being a herald of the king, as was John the Baptist and these other followers of Jesus, and offering you the opportunity. To receive him by believing in his name. That means you trust him. You believe who he is. He's your maker. You believe what he did. He died to pay the penalty for your sin. You believe where he is right now. He's alive because he's no longer in the grave. And you give yourself to him. And at the end of virtually every worship service we have, we give people an opportunity to do that. We're going to do that in just a moment. And then we'll pray and be dismissed. If you've never committed your life to him, I plead with you. Do not put it off for another day. I said that the darkness, the Bible says the darkness hates the light. Do you know the wonderful thing about the Christian? Is the Christian begins to love the light. He or she begins to love to bask in the light and to have a relationship with God and to see what God has to say and to go God's way rather than our way. C.S. Lewis wrote a series called The Screwtape Letters. It contains a marvelous description of the death of a Christian from the devil's point of view. Screwtape, this demon, laments a junior tempter's failure as a Christian passed into the immediate presence of God. Well, you failed. You let that one make it. And then he writes, what is blinding, suffocating fire to you is now cool light to Him. The radiance of God's immediate presence, friends, is going to be either suffocating fire or cool light to every person who has ever lived. And those who have come into God's light through Christ will be at home in his presence. But those who have hidden from God in the darkness will find the light of his presence unbearable and they will shrink from it. Cool light or suffocating fire. What will the presence of God be for you? Now, how do I receive then this light, Jesus Christ? What do I do? You realize you're a sinner. You recognize that Christ is the one who died for your sin. You repent of your sin. What's that mean? You say, Lord, you're my creator. You're my owner. You're my savior. I'm going to go your way, not my way. You receive Christ into your life. You pray a prayer to him from your heart to God as we bow in just a moment. Something like this in your own words. If you mean that, God says, I will save you. You will be one of those few comparatively who have come to the light. I plead with you to do that. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you for the words of your servant. We thank you for the witness of John the Baptist and for the recordings of the great apostle. We thank you that they and others have given us ample testimony To who Jesus Christ was and is. And So Lord thank you for moving upon our hearts. So that we gladly acknowledge you as our creator. Our savior and our Lord. We thank you that you have come into the world to save sinners. Of whom we are all a part. The great apostle Paul said of whom I am the worst. Thank you Lord for coming into the world to save me. Thank you for moving on my heart at a point in time. So that I received you by believing trusting. Thank you for the difference that that's made in my life and in the lives of so many here. Lord, I pray for any who have not trusted Jesus Christ, as Savior, that right now they're doing that. I pray that, Lord, as a result of being reminded of this from your word, that as we go this week into a world that is flush with relativism, all opinions are equally valid, we are told. Help us to always remember there is one way, one truth, and one life, and it is in Jesus Christ. And help those of us who have embraced the Savior to rejoice in that and rejoice that you see fit to allow us to herald your message to others. Go with us this week as we serve you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.